The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other. My guest today is David de Jong. We discussed his extraordinary new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties, which tells the story of how German tycoons made billions during the Nazi era and World War II, and how many of those industrialists and financiers and their heirs continued to be central figures in first the West German economy and then the reunited Germany. We talked about the Quant family for decades the controlling interests behind BMW and their intimate links to Hitler's inner circle, the extent to which the businessmen described in the book were opportunists or true believers in the Nazi project, and we also talked about why German businessmen, who were directly implicated in the persecution and murder of European Jewry, were largely able to maintain their business empires after the war. David de Jong is a journalist and author. His first book, Nazi Billionaires, is published in the US and the UK by HarperCollins. David spent four years reporting from Berlin while researching and writing the book, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Businessweek, and the Dutch Financial Daily. You begin the book by recounting the details of a meeting at the official residence of the Nazi leader Hermann Goering, at that time the president of the Reichstag, the German parliament, and at that meeting were Adolf Hitler, Goering, uh, Schacht, the, the former president of the German Central Bank, and as you described, two dozen of, of Nazi Germany's wealthiest businessmen, including four men who you focus on in the book. The arms producer, Gunter Quant, the uh, steel magnate, Friedrich Flick, and Baron August von Funk, the finance mogul, as well as Kurt Schmidt, CEO of the insurance giant Allianz, a, a name still well known today. Ostensibly, that meeting was supposed to be a discussion about the new government's economic policy. But could you explain what actually occurred at that meeting? Yeah, absolutely. So the meeting of February 20th, 1933 is, as you said, it's, it, it starts out or at least two dozen, well, more people were invited, but about two dozen showed up of Germany's wealthiest businessmen and executives and heirs arrive at, at Goering's Palace on the Spree River. And in the telegram that they've been sent, it's promised that Hitler is going to, who has just assumed power three weeks earlier, is going to explain his economic policies to the men. Of course, I had just 15 years of economic and political volatility in the Weimar Republic, and Germany is coming out of the Great Depression. It's on the tail end of it. And these men are yearning to get some good news with regards to, you know, the new chancellor's economic policies. But in fact, the the meeting is nothing more, turns out to be nothing more than a veiled fundraising meeting for a political campaign slush fund for the election of March 5th, 1933, two weeks later. Which would be the last uh, free election in, in Germany. Well, that's exactly, that's the point, because 
what these men get promised in the speeches by both Hitler and Goering is that this is going to be the last election in uh, 10, if not 100 years in Germany. So very explicitly, they know these men, or what they're getting promised is the end of German democracy. And Hitler and Goering and their consorted acolytes are, you know, fundraising to get, because they're broke, the Nazi party's broke, and they need to stage this final election campaign of March 5th, together with their coalition partner, which they still then have at that point. And they need cash to stage that election campaign. And yeah, as I said, you know, it's very, Hitler, Goering and Schacht very explicitly promise the end of German democracy and all the men, all the businessmen there, including three of my main characters, end up ponying up to sign over German democracy, as it were. And they had no qualms in doing so. And Joseph Goebbels, who was to run that campaign, famously, of course, the Nazi propaganda minister, he's absolutely jubilant once he hears the news of the amounts of funds that have been pledged. Yes, indeed. He is jubilant because, as I said, the Nazi party's broken. He describes in his diary entry of that day how or the, the depressive mood at the campaign headquarters because they don't have any money to run an election campaign. And uh, 24 hours later or the next or that evening, pardon, the next morning, he hears from Goering that, you know, the money is there, you know, and that they can stage a, an election campaign and that they, and he literally says, you know, we can get the, the presses are rolling. Of course, this entire point of whether the entire point of the election campaign kind of becomes moot because a week later, on February 27th, the Reichstag is burned down under murky circumstances, still not cleared up today, and the rule of law in Germany is suspended. Most of you know the, the communists and, and, and social democrats are rounded up by the Nazi regime. And even then, the Nazi regime on March 5th, or the Nazi party doesn't, isn't able to achieve a majority in parliament. It's only with the enabling act of mid-March that German democracy is dead. And when it comes to that decision to effectively sign the death warrant of German democracy, where are those different figures coming from? How much similarity is there amongst them in terms of their approach to the Nazis? Do they regard them as a sort of necessary evil because of their hostility to both the chaotic economic situation during the Weimar era, but also their hostility to the Communist Party and, and the Social Democrats as well? Are any of them, you know, sort of convinced Nazis? I would say that of my main characters, Günter Quandt and Friedrich Flick, were sheer opportunists. They, you know, thrived during the German Empire, they thrived in the Weimar Republic, they thrived in Nazi Germany, and they were West Germany's wealthiest men as well, or became Germany's wealthiest men as well. And they would have thrived today, too, in a reunified Germany, and their heirs do. I would say for, as well as Ferdinand Porsche, who becomes Hitler's favorite engineer and designs a Volkswagen. I would say the, all the other characters in my book, or at least the main characters, such as August von Fink, this Nazi financier and the controlling shareholder at the time of, of Allianz and Munich Re, as well as Richard Kazalowski and his stepson, Rudolf August Utker. These are the owners of the Dr. Utker. Uh, exactly, brand. of the uh, Dr. Utker food empire, as well as Ferry Porsche and Anton Pierre, respectively, Ferdinand Porsche's son and Ferdinand Porsche's son-in-law, they are all ideological Nazis, actually. Either, I'd say it's quite 
50-50 in a way in terms of the characters in my book so across the political spectrum where you have your sheer opportunists like Günter Kwan Friedrich Flick and Ferdinand Porsche and you have the others who are Nazi ideologues and even make decisions detrimental to their business but you know because they're such fervent Nazi believers Yes, I mean, I suppose the language of opportunists can almost seem as if as if it excuses the behaviour of, of these people sometimes. But of course, within ordinary members of the Nazi Party who saw which way the wind was blowing in the 1930s may not have been, you know, amongst the most sort of hardline ideological characters, but they were also opportunists, but nonetheless committing just, you know, horrific crimes. Exactly. I mean, it is always bizarre, you know, I mean, can one distinguish between ideologues and opportunists, you know? Some say, well, at least ideologues believe in something and opportunists don't believe in anything except for money in this case. You know, I would say they're, they're both equally evil. And could you give a sense of how significant these characters were at the time, the major industrialists and financiers who were present at the meeting? Because it's sometimes reported as if these people straightforwardly made their money during the Nazi era, which is neat and tidy, but isn't, isn't quite right. No, that's uh, incorrect. And it's actually one of the main kind of myths that I wanted to dispel with with, uh, with my book. Out of the, I write about five business dynasties in Nazi billionaires, and of which all five are still relevant in, in global business today. And four of the five were already extremely wealthy before Hitler seized power in January 1933, with the exception of the Porsche Pierre clan, which really laid the basis of its foundation, the foundation of its wealth during the, the during the Nazi era, both with Ferdinand Porsche designing the Volkswagen and convincing Hitler to put the Volkswagen in, in production, or first getting tasked by Hitler to design a prototype of the Volkswagen and then convincing Hitler to put that prototype into production, as well as with the founding of the Porsche car design firm, which because of Volkswagen's or the, the design of the or the success of the Volkswagen design also reached great heights during the Nazi era and, and laid the post-war foundation for the Porsche Pierklen, which today is, is you know one of Germany's and Austria's wealthiest dynasties. The Quants, of course, are best known regarding perhaps Herbert Quant, who is regarded as the savior of, of BMW, which was seen to be on the on the brink of bankruptcy in the late 1950s. How well are people like Herbert Quant known in Germany today and how much understanding is there of their historic role? I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, I think it isn't... The Quants are known, or at least two of Herbert Quant's children, Stefan Quant Stefan and Susanne Clotten, are known as Germany's wealthiest family. They are the controlling shareholders of the BMW Group today, which includes BMW, Mini and Rolls-Royce. They own about 47% of that car conglomerate. And that's what they are mainly known for. And they're, you know, they're similarly known as, I would say, the wealthiest family in the, uh, in the UK, whichever one that may be. Or like the Waltons in the US or the Koch brothers in the US, you know, of being just the wealthiest family and also having the largest economic influence as controlling shareholders of, of BMW and also as the largest political donors to the Christian Democratic Party. The legacy of Herbert Quant itself isn't very well known. And of course, this has allowed his children as controlling shareholders of BMW to, to whitewash his sordid Nazi era history. Herbert Quandt, who indeed, as you said, saved BMW from bankruptcy in 1959, 
and created Germany's wealthiest family as a result during the Third Reich. In the shadow of his father, Gunther, dismantled or, or designed, built, and dismantled a subconcentration camp in Nazi occupied Poland, had the responsibility over staffing at battery factories in Berlin where thousands of forced enslaved laborers were exploited and abused, including hundreds of female concentration camp captives from Auschwitz and, and Sachsenhausen, have he bought companies owned by or stolen from Jews in France. And he used forced laborers and, and prisoners of war at his private estate in Germany. And today, you know, in Germany, you have the Herbert Quandt Media Prize and the BMW Foundation Herbert Quandt, which is a massive global foundation. And both of them, for more than a decade, didn't acknowledge any of Herbert Quandt's Nazi era crimes on their websites, even though they were known to them and instead chose to whitewash them. It was only last week, for example, after on, on June 28th, when the BMW Foundation Herbert Quant decided for the first time to go public or publicly acknowledge that Herbert Quant had committed, committed crimes during the Nazi era. I mean, prior to that, you know, they maintained a foundation with the tagline, inspire responsible leadership, and which, you know, was just totally perverse. And they did this because, you know, following the publication of my book in April, some of the fellows that had received money from the foundation had been furious with that, had become furious after reading articles in The Guardian, for example, or interviews with me, and, you know, had complained to the, had been furious with the foundation for having been lied to and or gaslighted about Herbert Quant's overall legacy. They didn't know he had committed war crimes. And, you know, naively, perhaps, you know, they should have Googled who Herbert Quant was prior to accepting money from the foundation. But, you know, that's not their responsibility. It is partly their responsibility, but I would say the primary responsibility lies with the foundation to be transparent. You know, if you're committing philanthropy in the name of somebody who committed, uh, or if you're conducting philanthropy in the name of somebody who committed war crimes during the Third Reich. I suppose one aspect of it which seems curious is that when it comes to the Quants in particular, I mean, we're not talking about a family which had much distance from the Nazi regime. I mean, as well as, as you describe Herbert Quant and the crimes he committed during the Nazi era, his half-brother, Harold Quant, was the son of Magda Goebbels, wife of Joseph Goebbels. Uh, her former husband, of course, was Gunter Quant, Herbert and Harold's father. So, yeah, I mean, it just seems extraordinary that, that given those very close links, that there wasn't more discussion previously. Could you talk a bit about the role of, of Magda Goebbels in your book? Sure. I mean, Günther Quandt, the patriarch of the Quandt dynasty, came from like a wealthy textile producing family in the province of outside of Berlin. And he moves to Berlin in, in October 1918. And within 10 days of moving to Berlin, his wife dies, his wife Antonia dies of the Spanish flu pandemic. And he is suddenly a 37-year-old widower you know, alone in Berlin with two young sons. And he's a complete workaholic. And not only that, you know, the German empire has just collapsed. His life has, has suddenly taken, his country and his life has suddenly taken a disastrous turn. And three months later, he meets a 17-year-old girl on a night train from Berlin to central Germany. 
And that girl at that moment goes by her name Magda Friedlander, but is born with Magda Ritschel and soon becomes Magda Quant because Günther Quant, who is 20, 20 years older than her, becomes enamored with her and asks for her hand after their third date. They married. The marriage is a complete disaster, a total mismatch, and is, is dissolved within a decade. And they have one son, Harold. But, you know, she soon remarries to Joseph Goebbels, or she soon meets and falls in love with Joseph Goebbels. And, of course, then becomes the infamous Magda Goebbels, the unofficial First Lady of the Third Reich. And Günther Quant, after the war, kind of exploits this because, of course, Magda and Josef Goebbels famously, well, Magda Goebbels famously kills her six children in, in the Führer bunker on, on April 30th, 1945, or six children, or six remaining children. Harald Quant, or her six children of Goebbels. Harald Quant is at that moment in a British prisoner of war camp in Benghazi. There's that notorious, very strange photo of, of the family together, the Goebbels and the children, and also Harold Quant. It's a doctored photo that places him there, even though he wasn't present at the time. And it's, you know, I encourage people to go and look at it. It's a very odd uh, image. It is a very, see. very odd, odd picture indeed. Especially given yeah. the, the subsequent history. Yeah. And of course, so Günther Quant then exploits, you know, the fact that Magda Josef and Josef Goebbels are dead after the war to absolve himself from any wrongdoing during the Nazi era, he even claims... Uh, brazenly that he was a victim of persecution from Goebbels because he gets in his custody battle in the early 1930s with Josef and Magda Goebbels over the custody of, of Harald Quant. And nothing could be far, further from the truth. Günther Quant becomes one of the largest profiteers of the expropriation of Jewish-owned businesses, of businesses in, in German-occupied territories, one of the largest exploiters um, in private business of forced and slave labor, as well as, you know, one of the largest uh, producers of, of arms for the Nazi war machine. Yes, and on the latter, he also seeks to distance himself from his involvement in the arms industry after the war, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, he claims that he never wanted to get involved with it, and that it was his business partner's idea, etc., etc. And uh, yeah, which is all not true. You've mentioned that Magda Goebbels became known as the First Lady of the Third Reich. Of course, Hitler's relationship with Eva Brown begins later and, and is, is, is secret right up until the war's end. Could you say something about how she ends up taking up this role and this very peculiar triangular relationship that there is between Magda Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler himself? Yeah. Well, at the time in early 1931, when Goebbels and Magda are getting to know each other, you know, she meets Hitler for the first time in February 1931. And Hitler also becomes completely enamored with her. But then, he's, then he soon finds out that, you know, his trusted propaganda man and a man he considers his, you know, very close friend, as far as Hitler and Goebbels had any friends, you know, is already in a, is already courting her. And he's quite devastated about it. And then, you know, but then he kind of, Managed to turn it around and say, well, you know, I have to stay faithful. I have to, you know, I'm, my marriage is to the German people. That is my union, my sacred union. And he proposed this bizarre platonic menage a trois, which is dubbed the arrangement, where Hitler, who is just at that time getting to know Eva Brown, but they also have a very weird kind of, very weird courtship. And it's always the question whether they actually, you know, had whether that relationship was ever consummated. So Hitler proposed this platonic love triangle or triangle to, a relationship triangle to 
Goebbels and, and Magda, where the two of them serve as their, this kind of representation of what a union in Nazi Germany should look like. And which is rather ironic because they're like the most promiscuous couple and they're like, they sleep with others. Yes, constant affairs. Yeah. Constant affairs, constant lovers. And, you know, it's, it's far from being a perfect union. And even when both Magda and Goebbels fall in love with other people, they want to, you know, and they're trying to get divorced. You know, Hitler says, no, we have the arrangement in place. You know, you are my representatives as a union to the German people. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's one of these, you know, things, you know, one of the many more bizarre aspects of what the top Nazis are doing among themselves and, and something where I think, you know, reality is always stranger than, than fiction. This is certainly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Goebbels, of course, in his diary claims that the only time he disobeyed Hitler is, is when he decides to commit suicide along with Magda and take part in the murder of his children as well. So it's, yeah, that, that sort of very peculiar, macabre bond between the three. Exactly. And it's always, I mean, they always need to frame it in a way where it for them becomes, I mean, you see these mechanisms also in, in more contemporary politics, where it's always, whatever happens, it's always a win for themselves, like it's always, or it's something glorious, you know, comes out of it, or something bizarre. On some of the more notorious crimes that were committed by these individuals, whether that's, you know, Aryanization or the use of forced and slave labour in their factories, could you talk a little bit about how that worked as a process and also the significance of the SS leader Heinrich Himmler and his so-called circle of, of friends? So, you know, it's a sliding scale. It starts with... One thing that Hitler promises, and that he, and he makes good in that promise, promises the businessman during that meeting of February 20th, 1933, is, is the initiation of, of rearmament. And of course, you know, you soon have billions of Reichsmark flowing to the coffers of, of, the, of industrialists and their arms companies. But of course, secondly, which he starts ramping up from early 1934 onwards, of course, with the implementation of the Nuremberg Race Laws, in July 1935, and, and when the persecution and disenfranchisement of Jewish citizens of, of Nazi Germany is, is being ramped up, that's really when you, the so-called Aryanization, process of wave of Aryanization is initiated, which really is the, you know, Aryanization was this horrible euphemism to denote kind of the removal of the Jewish element of ownership from any asset, whether there was shares, company, real estate, art, jewelry. That process really takes place, this expropriation process of Jewish citizens of the Reich, or their businesses at least, really takes place between 1935 and, and late 1939, which of course is followed with the expropriation of businesses in German-occupied territories of Europe. And then thirdly, there is the, you know, and which is initiated from, from the summer of 1941 onward, is the largest forced labor program that the world has ever seen where you know anywhere between 12 and 20 million people from all over Europe are deported to Germany to you know to forcibly work in in German factories and mines the involvement of Heinrich Himmler yeah I mean Heinrich Himmler's circle of friends was more this kind of glorified networking group which the industrialists like Friedrich Fleck and Richard Kazalowski who bought in or who became members of it, saw as a kind of a, well, Friedrich Flick saw it as a, as a political insurance in a way. Kazalowski was far more provincial, 
So I just, you know, it was more of an arrivist. I kind of wanted to be part of it, to hobnob with SS officers. You know, it was a networking group. Did it give them any business advantages? Well, it certainly gave them, you know, often these kind of, you know, uh, Nazi Germany was very, or the spoils were divided in a very informal way. You know, it was basically, uh, you know, you basically had to pay bribes to Hermann Goering, who would then say, oh, you can, you know, if you gave them a couple of old masters or you would give them, you know, you'd give them for his birthday 10,000 of Reichsmark as a kind of, as a, as you know, to show your fealty, you know, and then cultivating these relationships. And then they would say, oh, you can have this, you know, steel factory in occupied France, or you can arianize this private bank in, in, in Vienna, etc., etc. So that, that that's what, you know, of course, Heinrich Himmler was not as influential in, in the business world. He was mainly influential in the uh, you know, as, as a third Reich's police chief, and of course, you know, most horrifically as architect of the Holocaust. But of course, the SS was the most powerful military or paramilitary entity in the Third Reich. So having its being a member of the uh, friendless, of, of Himmler's supposed circle of friends was, of course, you know, more political protection than one could buy in the, uh, in the Third Reich. And in the post-war era, so after the, the defeat of Nazi Germany, there are sort of initial moves during the sort of the denazification process and, and the various trials that take place of, of leading Nazis. There is a sort of meagre attempt to prosecute some of the leading figures, but it's pretty small scale. Most of them find themselves, you know, uh, back in control of, of the assets they previously controlled, continuing to be major figures in, in the post-war West German economy. Yeah, I mean, very quickly after the... World War II ends, or at least with the start of, of the Cold War in, in early 1947, you know, particularly the United States makes this very, makes this political decision or the Truman administration, where, you know, Nazi Germany becomes ancient history and, and kind of the suspected, those businessmen suspected of having profited from, from the atrocities of the Third Reich are suddenly it's all, yeah, it all becomes ancient history and they now need... German industry and also they need to rebuild West Germany as a viable political entity, as a as a stable economy to use as a as a bulwark against the Soviet Union and the encroachment of communism. And what happens is this accelerated handover, both in the American occupied zone and the British occupied zone of West Germany, of hundreds of thousands of suspected Nazi war criminals and Nazi sympathizers back to Germany for the so-called denazification trials or back to German authorities for the so-called denazification trials which were which turned out to be a very flawed legal process because of course you know most Germans which were layman trials actually and of course most Germans who, who sat in judgment of course did not want to you know judge their fellow compatriots on on uh, crimes that participated in themselves and, and sympathies that it held themselves so that becomes kind of these farcical legal proceedings which you know see eventually see millions of germans go scot-free for for the crimes and could they committed and, and the sympathies that they held in, and continue to held of course because they were never properly denazified 
And how divergent was the view of the authorities in post-war Germany? Was there that much difference of opinion between, say, the British and Americans, the French? Uh, of course, the Russians will have had, you know, the, well, the Soviets, I mean, would have obviously taken a very different view, given the nature of the economic order they instituted in East Germany. I mean, it was really the United States was in charge because the UK was weak at that time. It's it's. Yeah, it was the UK was in shambles after World War II economically, and wasn't really in any position to take charge. So they basically followed the lead of the United States. France was a bit different, of course. It had its own, you know, it had its own reckoning to do with half the country having been Vichy France, and of course, it's massive collaboration among the French with the Nazi regime, including its own auto manufacturers. Exactly, including its own auto manufacturers. You know, Renault was expropriated by the communist ministry because, I mean, the goal was in charge, but it was, of course, also a large communist power bloc at that time in France, very influential. Yes, at the, at the height of their prestige because of their role in the resistance. Exactly, so. because of the, exactly, exactly. And they, you know, Renault was expropriated for the collaboration with, with the Vichy regime, with the Nazi, uh, with Vichy France and the Nazi regime. But France wasn't... You know, it wasn't that relevant either in, in the scheme of things because they were also mainly busy dealing with themselves in a way. Go back to how well known this story is in, in Germany. I suppose one thing that occurred to me was that one might have imagined that given the upsurge in, in interest of what, you know, what Germans at the time had been doing that, there, that you see in, in the 1960s and the, and the 70s with the rise of the new left. And there's all this questioning of, of what people's, you know, parents and grandparents were doing during, during the war in the 1930s. You might think that through that process, that a very sort of prominent case like the Quants with their relationship towards BMW, one of the great, you know, success stories of, of the post-war era, you might think that, that that would have been more of a subject of that conversation. Was that, was that a surprise to you as well? It's interesting because these families are so secretive that, I mean, they, they were known with the German public at large. You know, they didn't give in, you know, Herbert Quandt, Friedrich Flick didn't give interviews to the, to the larger public, you know, or Rudolf August Oetker, or kind of these titans of German business weren't really, you know, they didn't really speak. So nobody really knew them that well and, and connected them. And of course, and also because nobody spoke really of the Nazi era, even, you know, we're talking about kind of this generation of 68, right, which initiated this culture clash with the larger, more reactionary generations. Their parents and their, their grandparents were served, you know, uh, who had been Nazi party members or whose fathers and grandfathers were served in the Wehrmacht for the SS. You know, even when this kind of debate starts, it, you know, there's not really that focus towards business of course you have the kind of the brutal actions by the red army faction in the 1970s and or late 1960s and and, and up until the well the third wave only ended in the in the 1990s but i would say the most relevant wave was of the of, of the or the most impactful wave of the of the raf was from the late 1960s to in the early 1980s that of course targets kind of nazi businessmen like hans martin schleier who was you know, chairman of Daimler-Benz, who had served in the SS, who was brutally executed. But of course, those kinds of actions don't, don't really spur people to talk more about their uh, Nazi past. It would actually, you know, have, have the opposite kind of effect. But at a large, of course, what the, what, what the generation of 68 established was, was to force, you know, more generation-wide 
to uh, people to talk about, you know, or start push for conversation to be initiated, which of course really took many more decades to take place. And, you know, for, for millions of Germans really never took place, particularly those in the East, you know, tens of millions or didn't take place belatedly. I would say that the conversation really started taking place after the reunification of Germany in, in, in 1991. So it's really only been a very quite, you know, it's only been a conversation that's being held for three decades, if that. And it is often that because these business families are still very secretive today, so these, these are people that don't generally, even though they try to shape, you know, society and public debate, you know, through media power prizes and philanthropy and such and such, they don't themselves go give interviews. So they're... Uh, they wouldn't speak with you, for instance. Right, exactly. But through their soft power, they're trying to shape the debate, but they don't actually want to talk themselves. They don't actually want to take responsibility for history themselves. So in a way, that, that also keeps it hidden. It keeps it hidden. It's convenient for them because they can exert power without actually having to show themselves. And... You know, they can conveniently shape the debate without having to say something themselves or speak about their father's uh, Nazi histories or, or legacies. And when they have been forced to address the issue just because of the scale of, of media coverage, you, you describe how there seems to be a very sort of standard playbook whereby these figures will announce that they have appointed a you know a distinguished historian to do an investigation into the family and their links to the Nazi regime. And you say in the book that, you know, this work is, is often quite good and, you know, accurate, but that they're not really doing this in the spirit of transparency. No, I mean, they're hiding, they're hiding the results in plain sight. They can now say, you know, oh, well, we have it all figured out in this 1200 page plus work of, of academia in, in dense academic German. And you can go, you know, look up the details in there. And of course, you know, 99.9% of Germans never end up reading those books. And of course, you know, it begs the question, who exactly is that reckoning with? Or this purported reckoning with? Because, of course, the vast majority of the Nazi era crimes were not perpetrated on Germans. They were of non They were of fellow Europeans, Eastern Europeans, Southern Europeans, Western Europeans, Nordic Europeans. And they never get to those, you know, surviving forces of slave laborers never get to read the big picture of those families that have exploited them in their weapons factories or in their coal mines or their surviving heirs. You know, so it's, you know, they're relying, these families, in my view, are relying on this, leaning in on one sense, on this notion, this this notion of collective guilt. Mm, Everyone's responsible. Exactly. Everybody's responsible. And, you know, which is also, you know, you're also dealing with a German public that's inundated with revelations with regards to the Nazi era. You know, it's what they hear day in, day out. So in a way, you know, it's, it's their, they, they're slightly desensitized to it, you know, and, and these families also take advantage of that, you know, who feels like reading another 1,200-page academic study on beloved business dynasty A or, or patriarch Z or brand X, you know. What's your understanding of how your book has been received? Because obviously this, this is a book with much more prominence than those studies. It's not an academic text as such. How much of an impact has it, has it had? Or do you think it's subject to the same process of, of, of you know, the sense of exhaustion with these kind of revelations? 
No, it it, it actually it, it's it's got, it's it's been received well. I mean, it's currently on the on the Spiegel bestseller list. It was number one on the side best list, and you know the reviews have been uniformly positive, and so has been the reception. And you know, as a result, you know you have the BMW Foundation, Harvard Quant, that's being confronted with furious fellows that feel lied to, and they're now being forced to undo their whitewashing and have to and being forced to publicly reckon you know, with maintaining a foundation in the name of a Nazi war criminal. And also with Porsche, for example, Porsche is preparing an IPO. It's going to, you know, in, in, in the fourth quarter of this year, it's going to be one of the largest stock exchange listed in Germany ever. They want a clean house, you know, before the IPO takes place. So there, there are some changes there coming, or there's some, you know, they, they maintain the Ferry Porsche Foundation and without any acknowledgement that Ferry Porsche was an SS officer, was a voluntary SS officer and surrounded himself with high-ranking SS officers as CEO of Porsche in the 1950s and 60s and wrote virulently anti-Semitic vitriol about Adolf Rosenberger, who was a Jewish co-founder of Porsche, who was pushed out of the company by, by Ferry Porsche's father, Ferdinand Porsche, and by its brother-in-law, Anton Pierre. And, you know, these are things that, that Porsche wants to deal with before the IPO happens. So there's going to be, there's going to be some news regarding to that in, in the coming months, because the Porsche family has never spoken publicly about the Nazi legacy, nor of Ferdinand Porsche or Ferry Porsche. So it is a confrontation, and they, they are being forced in a way. Their hand is, is, is being forced of, of the BMW Quant family, and, and because they're, they're, you know, they're getting angry reactions from, from people that are, of those that are, those families are being confronted with it that those are doing the most brazen whitewashing of their patriarchs, which is particularly Herbert Quant, which is particularly being done in the name of Herbert Quant and of Ferry Porsche. Also, to a lesser extent, well, no, I would say on a similar level, also Friedrich Flick and Rudolf August Utker, but those foundations are less prominent, so they're receiving less, uh, or their brands are less prominent, uh, so they're receiving less attention so far. But so the ire is being directed mainly at the, those that are that are most in the public eye, even though the families themselves are all the families are right about are, are very secretive and barely ever speak to the press. Has there been much sort of pushback in more conservative circles? Because one imagines that, of course, these are you know when we're talking about some of the the car manufacturers, these are you know some of the most prestigious brands in the world: BMW, Porsche, Volkswagen, Audi. And we're in a moment really where the German economy is, it doesn't seem to be particularly transitioning well to a more sort of more high tech and, and more advanced sectors. And these remain the, the real sort of flagships of, of the, the German economy. And is there a sense that, you know, an, an attack on, on BMW and Porsche is, you know, it's an attack on Germany itself? Yeah, but I think even from the most conservative circles, they are not going to try or far well far right maybe maybe from the afd ultimately for for germany but they're in complete turmoil at the moment but even from the cdu or the csu the christian conservative who are currently not in power of course but who have you know counter quants and the utkers as, as some of their largest annual donors and and very active members you know they're keeping quiet because they they're not gonna go out on a limb and support you know herbert quant or Ferry porsche or the BMW and Porsche brands in support of their legacy when it's known, you know, when it's been a public secret that these men committed war crimes or that were voluntary SS members, you know, that, that would be politically an incredibly dumb thing to do, do and would backfire massive, massively publicly. Going back to the leading industrialists and financiers and so on, 
Can you explain why you chose the families that you did? Because I think people familiar with the period might think, well, why isn't there a chapter on on the Krupps or the Tysons and and, uh, some of the other well-known families that profited during the Nazi era? Because the Krupps and the Tysons are no longer relevant in global business today. And these five families are. So that is really kind of one of the conditions that you you had to be, even if you haven't had an operative company anymore, like, for example, the Flick dynasty has who managed their billions through family offices, but they invested globally, you know, real estate in London, you know, art, private equity, hedge funds, etc. You know, you still have to be relevant as a, as a, they're still relevant as a business plan, even without an operational business, you know, because they, you know, they invest their billions globally. Uh, and, the Krups, and the opposite you know, is the case with 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 Krupp. Well, the Krupps are no. There's no heir to the Krupps. The, the last heir of the Krupps uh, aren't died was disinherited by his father Alfred, who put it, the 25% stake in a foundation, and he died in 1983. I mean, he had a, he was given a royal allowance by his father, but you know he died without children in 1983. The Tisens sold out of Tisens. In 1994, and they literally moved to the Pampas. They literally moved to Argentina, and they're not, you know, the main child. Those that received the billions, uh, as it were, and they, you know, they, they, their family offices is, is not really active in, in in European or business anymore, or, or, or global business as much. Do you see the Quants and the Flicks and the von Finks and so on? Do, do you see them as pretty emblematic of how the German business class? responded and behaved through the 1930s and, and during the war, or do you see them as unusually morally culpable? No, they're representative of the wider uh, business. There's nothing exceptional about them in their, in their behaviour. They're indicative for how, how German business as a, as a whole behaved. With that main difference is that they're, they're still are among Germany's, or the world's economically most influential business dynasties today. And of course, many others from that time are not. And as we've already discussed, there are figures who seem to be, and this seems to be true of most of them, business figures who were opportunists. There are some who seem to be, you know, convinced Nazis and so on. But when it comes to the motivations of the more opportunist, how do you see sort of the interaction between personal advancement, greed, the desire for power, and also the imperative of capital accumulation? Because obviously Nazi Germany, although of a very unusual sort, remains a capitalist society in which uh, corporations are subject to the, the pressures of the market, however constrained and influenced by state intervention. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was their sole interest from, 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 from the opportunists, at least. It was that they wanted to expand their business empires by any means necessary. It wasn't so much the, you know, weapon production itself was is not a criminal act, but it evolved soon into criminal behavior, even though it was codified anti-Semitic, you know, it were codified in anti-Semitic laws. It soon evolved into criminal behavior to the expropriation first of, of Jewish business families, then of European business families, the occupied territories, and then ending with the, the mass exploitation of, of millions of human beings in, in forced enslaved labor. But their only interest, their sole interest, was the expansion of their business empire and how that happened. And, and they were very calculating that if, if, you know, if an Aryanized company wasn't a good fit for the conglomerate, they wouldn't do it. You know, they wouldn't, they would do it by any means necessary, but they wouldn't take every opportunity, you know. Yeah, they had no scruples. But they still had a business strategy. Does that potentially, because I think, you know, there could be a reading which sees 
the case of these billionaires as, as an indictment of capitalism per se, because one could say, well, you know, the imperative of capital accumulation to varying degrees in all societies encourages people to put aside any sort of moral and ethical qualms and to focus on the bottom line. And, you know, in certain circumstances, well, that that might mean, you know, polluting a river, say, in Nazi Germany, it meant things, you know, even even more horrific. Um, Does it lead you towards those kind of conclusions? I mean, I believe that capitalism in itself is amoral, right? It is what the actors and with their agency do in a capitalist system, which devolve, which which can devolve into criminal behavior. The accumulation of capital in itself is 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 not immoral. It's amoral. But again, you know what the actors end up doing with it and with their agency in that context can devolve into criminality. Yeah, for for sure. In terms of of what you were seeking to do with the book, I mean, you you make reference to the fact that you first became involved in in sort of moving towards writing this book at the time of the Occupy Wall Street protests and and the popularization of of the term, you know, the 1%. And in some, you know, appreciative comments about your book, Adam Tooze has suggested that the families you investigated reflected our era's concern with, with inequality. Do you agree with that reading of why you selected those companies? I mean, of course, the not so much in the selection of the families or, or the companies, but of course, the, you know, in a way, you know, I think at the start of Occupy Wall Street, we thought so, which is, was going to be, you know, and, 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 and which of course coincided very much with the, the start of the, or with the Piketty era, as a way is that it was going to be, you know, I think there was a lot of hope that there was going to be some sort of solutions towards the diversions in, in wealth and, and or to inequality perhaps naively, but that was kind of very much, I felt that spirit, you know, having both seen the, or, or, or visited Sukoti Park at that time and, and, and in Amsterdam next to the stock exchange or in front of the stock exchange. But, you know, the opposite happened, you know, it's, if you look at the last 11 years, those discrepancies have only grown bigger, those wealth inequalities globally, much more, particularly through the pandemic, it's been so much more exacerbated. So that certainly was on my mind, you know. Yeah, I focus on on German business dynasties, but but of course the topic itself is is a global one. The topic of the most power, the wealthiest and the most powerful on the planet not taking responsibility or whitewashing history or not taking responsibility for the wealth that their fathers and grandfathers accumulated or or having so little reflection on their accumulation of power or, or, or such, such, such little realization in a way that they're so cut off from reality. I think that's a problem that we see globally at the moment, very much so. And I think it's very much exacerbated in the, in the past two and a half years. And do you think that the fact that in Germany, there's a much more kind of the very obvious involvement in criminality is, you know, it's, it's pretty recent. We're not talking about the era of the transatlantic slave trade, which obviously, you know, there's no one around, you know, the figures who accumulated their wealth passed on their wealth, of course. And, and there are many businesses which are still built on those foundations, but it's not as, as close in time. So, I mean, do you think that means there's a peculiar vulnerability for the wealthy in, in, in Germany, given the scale, you know, just how massive the involvement of, of German business was in the Nazi era? Or, or do you think it's, you know, it's kind of the flip side of that is a very pessimistic reading, which is, you know, if, if it seems as if nothing can be done about inequality in Germany, even in a situation where it's very obvious that that class was kind of, you know, just up to its neck in, 
in blood, then can things be done anywhere else where the concentration of wealth is less easy to track or it's across a longer period of time? And so the moral repugnance that one might feel is, is more distant, I suppose. I mean, I do, I do unfortunately think that Germany, which together with my native Netherlands, is a, a few of the countries which, where yes, of course, you have these business dynasties that have been have been rich for you know 150 plus years, right? So it's the kind of the Piketty model of, of wealth accumulation. Whether and whether that is through through profiting from a genocidal regime or not, or you know, in the Netherlands having their roots in in the mass slave trade, you know, or also a lot of collaboration with with Nazi Germany. And these are two of the most equal, I would argue, two of the most relatively equal societies in the in the world. You know, if they're already the discrepancies are getting enormously or the wealth, the wealth discrepancies, the wealth inequality is already getting so out of hand. I mean, it doesn't that boats incredibly gives an incredibly dire vision for for other countries, which is true. You know, if you look at the United States, I mean, it's completely broken. I mean, I mean, the U.S. is today. Um, uh, a former colleague of mine, Jesse Drucker, announced that he's, he's he's writing this new book called "The Tax Avoidance Industry," and it's about uh, the American tax system redistributing wealth to the richest people on earth, and how the tax burden is shifted downward. And you know, and how it's it created this unprecedented and completely unsustainable inequality in the United States. I mean, that's the issue we're dealing with. I mean, it is it's it's unsustainable. And I don't know where it's going to end, but it's not going to go any, anywhere. It's not going to end go going to end anywhere good. You know, we saw that. You know, the election of Trump. You know, the Brexit vote. All these forces of populism and nationalism and jingoism and nativism, wealth in inequality is a massive. And those you know disgruntled, feeling disenfranchised, feeling disenfranchised, a huge contributor to all those factors. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.